We were over in Ezekiel chapter 40, and we're not going to cover the entire chapter. We're just going to be looking at the first five verses and some other verses in Scripture. Sort of setting up for things that are coming. So if you're up on Facebook, we gave you the description for tonight. Is the temple of Ezekiel a literal coming temple or a figurative prophetical uh, prophecy of things to come? So we're going to deal with that question here. First, the Ezekiel temple is called the third temple. The first temple, of course, is Solomon's temple. And that one was destroyed by Babylon. And then, of course, we had the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. And they rebuilt the wall and the temple. And that is the second temple. That is referred to as Herod's temple because Herod took that, that uh, temple and uh, upgraded it and made it a lot bigger. And when we look at the measurements and such things that are given for us uh, next week, we have some uh, pictures that I hope to be able to make available for everyone, whether here or on Facebook, that will show you the, the difference in size. Solomon's temple was smaller than a football field. Give you an idea. It's about, I would say, maybe two-thirds the size of a football field. Um, Zerubbabel's, or Herod's, uh, temple was larger than a football field. Actually, it would be Herod's because Herod made it, made it bigger. So it was considerably larger than a football field. Ezekiel's temple is, I'm trying to think of the, it's two to three times bigger than Herod's in size. It is a very, very large temple by the, by the measurements we are given. And of course, we uh, have the cubits and all that sort of stuff and, and they're converted. Sometimes they convert a, a cubit to 18 inches, sometimes 21, and sometimes 24 inches. Uh, so you can see you can get some, some variance on the size there. But it is the largest of all the temples. And so we'll, we'll show you some, some pictures that will compare all three of them so that you can see the, the size that is there. But what we've had here so far is in Ezekiel 36 and 37... We had uh, Israel was restored. We had the prophecies that Israel would be restored. In 38 and 39, we had Israel was defended. God came down and defended them when the uh, last day's battle took place. So Israel is called home and they reestablished the covenant with, with God. Once they reestablished the covenant, this requires a temple to be built if they do not accept Jesus as the sacrifice for their sins, which we have no indication that they do. So they worship Jehovah like they worship Jehovah in the Old Testament. And this is why a temple would be coming. So in verse 1, in the 25th year of our captivity, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year, after the city was captured, on the very same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. So this is the 25th year of captivity, 14 years after the fall of Jerusalem, this would put the date of around 573 B.C. It was also happened to be the very day, so it was the anniversary of the day that the city was captured. So the day that the walls were breached, the gates were, were intruded upon, and the people in the city were killed, taken into captive, and so forth. This was the day that it happened, and this is the day that the, the word came. Now that's a lot of time between the fall of Jerusalem 
in now, that's 14 years, and we don't have that many prophetic utterance, utterances that Ezekiel wrote down. So I would assume that there are a lot more things that he has done, either prophetically or in a, in a teaching way, with the people. He hasn't just been sitting around. Ezekiel's not one to just sit around and, and not do anything. But these are the ones that have made the, made the book, the ones that he wrote down for, for people to see later on. So again, let's read that in the 25th year of the captivity at the beginning of the year on the 10th day of the month and the 14th year after the city was captured on the very same day the hand of the Lord was upon me and he took me there. So he's saying that he was physically taken to a place. He's not describing this one as a vision. He's describing this, this that the hand of the Lord was upon me and he took me there. In the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain on it toward the south was something like the structure of the city. It's interesting that he does not call it a city. He said that it's something like the structure of a city. If it looked like any other city in the, in the, in the world, even if it didn't look like Jerusalem, if it just looked like a city, wouldn't he call it there was a city. So he's used to a city as a place with stone walls and gates and stone houses and this is what he would see as a city and whether it would be Jerusalem or whether it be some other major city, he would still consider this to be a city. It would seem from this description that we have here that what he has seen is not a city of his day. It is a city of another day and a city that would probably more in our, our modern day and it doesn't look like a city he's used to. But he knows what homes would look like and they're all kind of grouped together and so he calls it. He set me on a very high mountain on it toward the south was something like the structure of a city. So more than likely this is a city that he has seen. It's just that it doesn't look like any city that he's used to. Uh, this is more than likely, and we're going to see some other indications of this, of course, that this is a future time in Israel. This is a temple, and by the measurements of it, it does not match the temple that was just destroyed, and it certainly doesn't match the temple that was before, uh, that, that, that will be coming uh, right after this one. It's a, it's a very large temple. So it has to go sometime into, into the future, because at the time of his writing, there is a, there is a new temple that will be built, and this is Zerubbabel's temple, and which will later be converted to Herod's temple, and that will be destroyed in 70 AD. This is a long way away from Ezekiel's time. So Ezekiel is talking about a temple that is after that one. And whatever he sees as a city from the high mountain, he can pick out, well, it looks kind of like a city, but it's not like any city I'm used to. In the words of... Uh, one famous movie, we're not in Kansas anymore. So this is, this, this is not something that's going to be probably known to him unless God gives him a lot of revelation that he does not write down, which is very possible. Ezekiel is at a very high level of receiving revelation and God could have revealed to him that this was not the next temple but the one after it. So he may know that this is from some time in the future. But he is carried over to Jerusalem from where he is over here 
in Babylon. He took, he took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze, and he had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. So he was up on the mountain. He, from the mountain, he could see that to his south there was something like a city. Let me read those two things together. He set me on a very high mountain. On it toward the south was something like the structure of a city. He took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. So the first thing that the uh, that God does is he transports him to a very high mountain so that he can get an overall aerial view of what's going on, and then takes him to the place so that he can see the temple and the city. And behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. We don't see this too often. Uh, sometimes we're seeing that uh, certain parts are called bronze. A lot of folks want to um, see that this is uh, Jesus, the angel of the Lord, that would be this, this way. It very well could be. Uh, I would have no problem with, with it being Jesus or, or not being Jesus, but I would say the, it would seem that he is uh, dealing with the Son of God here. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and fix your mind on everything I show you. For you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything you see. Now there was a wall all around the outside of the temple, and the man's hand was a measuring rod six cubits long, each being a cubit and a handbreadth. And he measured the width of the wall structure, one rod, and the height, one rod. We will get into all these things. We'll show you some, some maps and uh, some, some depictions of this, what it would look, to, look like. I've seen, I would say, 20 to 30 different pictures of this temple. And it is amazing the similarities that are between each one. There's a whole lot of similarities. That are there, so we'll 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 take some of the best of them and uh, bring them over here for you to see next time. What I noticed when we're going through here in these verses and also in the ones that are to come is that we're talking about a third temple. This is a futuristic time. This is something that is coming down the road. If Israel were to build a temple today, and they would. Uh, and it would be as large as Ezekiel is, is putting here. As I was reading, uh, and I read all the chapters on the, on the temple, just so I had a, a fresh thing with it, I noticed that there's something missing in the description that Ezekiel gives us. It's very glaring in what is missing, and that is people. I don't see people. I see a temple. I see the man who's doing the measuring. When he went back into Jerusalem and he saw the temple in the visions he had prior, he saw people. He saw people doing things they shouldn't be doing in the temple area. He described the things that they were doing. But he was, there was a lot of people doing a lot of things, but here it's missing. Why would we have this huge temple without people. I don't, I don't really hear the, the priest described. They're there measuring and apparently no one bothers them. No one's in their way. 
They can just go about and take, they can measure. And of all the things that he describes, and he describes a lot of things that are going on in this that he has seen, he never talks about any people. He never talks about any of the business of the temple that's going on. And he did have that in, in the other visions. But it is, it is glaring to me that it's missing here. So why does the temple seem to be empty of people? So I began to ponder this and, and think on this. and Well, why, why would it be that this would go on? Because I cannot see that Israel builds a temple. And most supposition of this is that this is a tribulation temple. If we have a tribulation temple, we're not looking at this thing being used for very long. Seven years, if it's built a little before the tribulation starts. But whether it's being built, if it's being built, there's going to be a lot of people around it. And once it's finished, there's going to be a lot of people all over that thing. I cannot imagine that there would be a time that that temple would not be inhabited. I don't think that Solomon's temple was ever not inhabited. They had people in there praising. They had people in there praising. They had stuff going on all the time in there. I cannot imagine that this is going on. So why is it that Ezekiel shows up and no one's here? So in, in pondering this, and um, some of this is, is also the way I interpret this, and we'll get into that here in, in just a little bit. Um, but Ezekiel is, from, from the way I read this, and I've read it through all the way through just as carefully as I could to, to make sure we're on the, on the right page with that. He is seeing the actual temple just as John was seeing the tribulation. He is seeing the temple. But he's not seeing anyone. And no one seems to see him. When John was, was dealing with, he was in heaven, people saw John. People asked John questions. John would ask them questions. There was an interaction that was going on. He would talk about how many people were, were in the presence of God. He would talk about how many martyrs came up. There's always people being described, yet in this one, it's gone. So I began to think about this. Is it possible that what happens here is that Ezekiel, just as Elijah and just as Moses are taken up to the future, there'll be two witnesses. And just as John was taken up to the future to write down the things that would happen, that Ezekiel is taken to the future and sees the actual temple, but is present in a dimension for which he sees no one, and no one sees him. Now, the idea of multiple dimensions is not new. It's something that's been passed down. You know, science fiction takes it on all the time. But we hear uh, uh, constantly from the Word of God that, that, you know, the angels are around us. And we just don't see them. And so one of the uh, things that people have supposed is that they are involved in another dimension. And that suddenly uh, they can transform from one dimension to another and be visible. We saw this with Jesus when he was here. Jesus seemed to be able to just disappear and uh, pass through walls. Uh, but he was solid. He ate food. He could be touched. So it would seem that uh, there, there's 
things along those lines, he may be present and all this activity may be going around him, but he's present in another dimension. And if there's other dimensions, certainly God can make you present in one dimension or not, or, or another. That that may be why, because this is, uh, uh, it's very odd that there's no people. When all his other visions, when he was in Babylon and had visions of the Jerusalem temple, he saw people. He even saw the presence, the, the Spirit of God move from one to another. He saw the people, he saw the, the, the Spirit of God, he saw all these things, but here he sees nothing. So again, it says in verse 3, he took me there. This is the man. And behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. And he had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand. And he stood in the gateway. So the hand of the Lord was upon him. And he took him there where there was a man with the appearance of bronze. I don't know. What would that be like? What would it be like to see somebody who looks like bronze? That's that would be something. So uh, he's going around, he's measuring these things, and in the chapters that come, it's, that's really all he does is he measures. He's measuring this, he's measuring that, and we'll, we'll kind of spend time with that all in, in one, one thing. If you just read, well, this is so many cubits, and this was so many cubits, it really won't bless you that much. <laughs> but we're going to show it to you as a, as a whole picture, and that can help us out a lot more. But I just want to take on these, these first parts here to figure out because there is a, a, amazing to me how many people do not see this as a literal prophecy. In fact, some people that I have a lot of respect for as, as far as what they are, are uh, coming up with with the, with the word will write very extensively that this cannot be a literal prophecy. And they have their, their arguments. I've read over all the arguments for why this is not literal. I've read over the... Uh, uh, support for it being uh, figurative. And so we're going to try and deal with that with you here. But let's go on with this. And um, again, verse 5. Now there was a wall all around the outside of the temple. In the man's hand was a measuring rod uh, six cubits long, each being a cubit and a handbreadth. And as he measured the width of of the wall structure, one rod and the height, one rod. Now this temple is foretold of in Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 which reads, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, speaking of the Antichrist. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So here we have that there's going to be a covenant between the Antichrist and Israel, many have supposed that the basis for this covenant is being allowed to, to um, build a temple. That would be somehow tied in with it. We'll let you build a temple, we'll make this covenant, and then they're going to break that covenant. They're going to come in and they're going to desecrate that temple. But for the measurements we have from Ezekiel, there is absolutely no way that this, that this temple could be built on the Temple Mount. So I don't think they need a covenant in order to be able to build this. And we'll get into some of those things later on. But in order for him to bring an end to sacrifice and offering, 
and to bring the uh, abomination of desolation into the temple, there has to be a temple. For which right now there is no temple. So Daniel's prophecy here in chapter 9, verse 27, cannot come about until there is a temple. And there's more besides just this one. It talks about the things that would be done inside the temple. Matthew 24, 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. So here Jesus is, is sort of putting his stamp of approval on what Daniel said. And Jesus is saying, when you see this, again, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. So well, there has to be a holy place in order for an abomination of desolation to be set up. In 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. So how can he do this to sit as God in the temple of God if there is no temple of God? There needs to be a temple of God in order for this to occur. Then in, in Revelations chapter 11 and verse 1, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Half the tribulation. So he's given the rod and is told to measure. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. So this is what you're going to have, much like uh, it happened with uh, Elijah when they came to get him and the, the soldier and his 50 men and they demand he come down. And he said, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven, burn you up. And fire came down and burned them up. And the second group came. And the uh, same thing happened to them. Third group came. And the guy got wise. And he said, uh, <laughs> I don't, look, these are my orders. Can you please come along with me? He said, well, since you asked nice, we'll go along with you. <laughs> and so he went along with them. But this is, uh, this is the same Elijah who called fire down upon the altar. That didn't kill anybody, but it burned up the altar, the water, and so forth. So it seems that Elijah has the fire anointing. And he's able to, to call this down. Uh, when you look at the story with, with Elijah, there was, there was nothing from God that came to him. There was no prayer to, to God. God defend me. Uh, he just called for it. That was, that was it. He just called for it. And what you're seeing here, these have powered... Uh, if anyone wants to harm them, verse 5, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. Now, this can be understood a couple of ways. One, you can go literal with this, and the fire is coming out of their mouth and burning people up. That would be quite a sight to see. Or it could be that he speaks the words, and then the fire comes and burns them up. Now, if you have that ability that anyone who comes against you 
you call for fire and it comes down and burns people up that can hinder people from coming against you. Because these two guys are walking around the streets and everyone wants them dead, but no one seems to make a move to do so. Even though we have very powerful dictators, even though we have people that exert all kinds of power, they can't seem to exert it on these guys. Why? So this is, this is the explanation he's given here. And I'm, I'm more on the side that I think he calls for the fire and it comes. Because God, in the book of Revelation, it's all about demonstrating the power of God coming down, not the power of men. And uh, the fear of God is what is supposed to be conveyed, not the fear of Elijah. My, in my readings through this, Moses and Elijah don't leave each other's side. They go hand, they go, they're, they're a pair. They're a Batman and Robin type of a deal. They don't, they don't go any, anywhere without each other. They're always there. So Moses doesn't need that fire anointing because Elijah's got it. <laughs> Moses has the water anointing. But he, <laughs> he's got the fire anointing. And so, uh, Moses can just step on back there and say, well, do you take care of it? They want to come get us. And so Elijah, he just steps in there and say, fire come down, burn you up. Then fire comes down and burns them up. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Seems pretty certain. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Well, who did that? They have power over waters to turn into blood and to strike on the earth with all plagues as as often as they desire. And that's Moses. So when you look at Elijah's ministry, and Elijah was, was ministering, and really not many converts, and most of the nation is leaving God and not fearing God. We have the, the bit of converts on the mountain, the prophets are killed, but then it goes right back to where it was, and he gets afraid and he runs and, and so forth. It doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of, um, a whole lot accomplished there. But this is just a training ground. God wants Elijah trained in a hostile environment for what is to come. And so God puts Elijah in the Northern Territory. Can you imagine if Elijah was in the Southern Territories in Judah with a God-fearing king? Boy, it's some of the things that could be done. I mean, you want to go to God and say, God, why didn't you take somebody like Elijah and put him in the South? But the South wouldn't have trained him up like the North would have. We got to get him trained. Because when he gets there, he's got to hit the ground running. He's got three and a half years. We can't have any training going on. We can't have any learning going on. I need him to know how to do this stuff, how to flow in this, and not let other people mess with you. And so other people mess with him a little bit. But he learned how to get over it. And so now he's trained up. And God's going to usher him right from there, right over to the end times. It won't even seem like a blink in an eye for him. He's not waiting thousands of years. He's not able to forget anything. He's going right from there, right over to the end times, and he's going. He's going to hit the ground running. And Moses, the same thing. These are two people from two different time frames. So apparently there's going to be some no rain time. And remember, Elijah said, this is one of the first things he he had done. He said, there will be no rain except that my word. So that's what he's going to do when he comes back. He's going to say, no rain until I say so. And there'll be no rain. So they have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When you read through the book of Revelation, do you find times when the water turns to blood? 
There are a few times when water turns to blood. It would seem that Moses was invited. Even though when we read the time when, there, when the waters were turned to blood, we don't hear about Moses or any of the two witnesses doing anything. But it would seem that their hand was involved when that is going on. And to strike the earth with all plagues as often as God desires. Nope. It says they. So, what God has done is He's taken two people, trained them up to do exactly what He wants them to do, and He can trust them. And He says, here's the power. Now, as often as you want to do this, go ahead and do it. If you see an opportunity... You go ahead and do it. Because if you all want to do it, it's going to be in a situation where I want it done. They're not going to take, they're not, not going to be waiting for orders from God. God, should we do this? It says, as often as they desire. So, if you want to make it difficult for Elijah and Moses in the end, they can make it even more difficult for you. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now what city are they in? They're in the great city. They... Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Well, they kept releasing plagues, turning water into blood, calling fire down, killing people. They're all saying, somebody's got to do something. Somebody's got to do something about those two. We've got to get rid of those two. They're, they're causing too much trouble. Somebody's got to do something. And nobody could do anything. And then all of a sudden one day, they're dead. And they're left out there and, so that all the world can see. So you've got the CNN cameras and the MSNBC cameras and whoever else is out there. 24 hours of coverage looking at these dead bodies on the, on the ground. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another, be like Christmas. Mm-hmm. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. So if we wonder why God let them die, and had them to be viewed, He wanted everyone to see, three and a half days, they're lying there. If they're lying there dead, just You just look at some of the things you've seen on the news now. And everybody hates these people. Everybody hates these two. If they are lying there dead on the road, what is going on with those bodies? Can you see people going up, kicking them, beating them, stabbing them, just taking all that hate that they've had for these two who have wreaked havoc on the earth, that for those three and a half days, they are beaten on those bodies. There is no doubt in anyone's mind that these two are dead. They've been beat up. Could you, if you keep getting kicked in the head, 
and kicked in the kidneys or whatever vital organs you got, and you don't move, you don't budge, and you get stabbed, and you're a bloody mess, all the world's going to know they are dead. There is no way they could be alive. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. If, we, if they just laid in the street and weren't beat up and tortured, I don't think the fear would be nearly as great. But they saw all this. They know there's no way they could be alive. They could not take that beating that was there. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying that to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. Well, all the cameras are on them. The videotape is rolling. And they hear the voice, Come up here. And they just rise and go. Explain that one. Hmm. Now, go on back here. I've told you this part of it before, but just to remind you. Verse uh, 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. What are we measuring? The temple of God. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the what? The holy city underfoot for forty-two months. They will tread the holy city underfoot for 20, 42 months. Where is the temple? It's in the holy city, right? Go on over to... I just lost it. Verse 8. The dead bodies of the prophets and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, not the holy city. The temple is not in the great city. The temple is in the holy city. These are two different cities. This is one passage that calls one the holy city because that city has the temple. And the other one is called the great city, which would most likely be Jerusalem. So it would seem that the temple is in the holy city and the two witnesses are in the great city. Now look at Zechariah 14. Over here, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst. And I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall split in two, from east to west, making a large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azale. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. 
Thus the Lord will come, my God will come, and all the saints with you. Now, a number of things to take a look from this before we go on with the rest of it. If you have a great earthquake and a mountain splits in two. Now, it's not a huge mountain. It's the Mount of Olives. Jesus taught some lessons from there. This is He left there when he uh, ascended. And if that splits in two and one part goes to the north and one part goes to the south, creating a, a valley, where would you run? How many would run away? I would run away from the mountain that is splitting in two. That's what I would do. That's what most people would do, right? But that's not what they're told to do. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley. So he's saying we're going to take the valley, we're going to take the mountain, we're going to make a valley, we're going to split it in two. Now all the heathen who don't believe the word of God they're going to run from it. But he's telling you guys, run into it. So in Moses' day, we had a valley of water. And you were to pass through. But in the end times, we're going to have a valley of land that most people are going to flee. And God says, no, you walk through it. I've commanded you to walk through it. In other words, you'll be just as safe in that valley in this earthquake as you were when you crossed the Red Sea in the Jordan in that valley of water. Of course, in the days of Uzziah, there was a great earthquake. Let's go in verse 6. And it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. Remember the Revelation talks about a day of darkness? And it, and in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day. It shall be the Lord is one and his name one. Well, when Jesus returns, he will of course the, um, well, let's just read it over here in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in, this, in his own authority, but you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him in their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went, went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So Jesus is going to return to this mountain when they see this earthquake. It's because Jesus has landed. And either he just pushes it with his feet, moves it apart, or whatever it is that he does. But that mountain splits apart. And when they go through that mountain valley, Jesus is right over top of them. 
And this is what they're supposed to do. So a valley and a river is going to form through the center of Jerusalem. And this river is going to be there through the millennial ring. Now here's a question I put in your, your outline. I just barely had enough room to fit this in there. But why does the tribulation begin with God fighting Israel's battle without them doing anything to them suffering great defeat in the end before God defends them? Ezekiel's uh, war that we had covered in the previous two chapters, they did nothing. This great army came, amassed, and God defeated them before they ever got to fire a shot or, or kill anybody or do any damage at all. And yet this one is going to come in and overrun Jerusalem, ravage the women, kill people, take people captive, and then God will show up. Why does, why does that happen? In order to answer that question, all we have to do is go back through history. If you go back through the, the Old Testament, you will find that the only time the people of Jerusalem of Israel were allowed to be defeated by their enemies was when they disobeyed God. So God gave them a start, a fresh start. He called them in from all, all over. He had this, this great battle where he showed up and he defeated the enemy so that it would be a testimony to all the Jews that were all over, all over the world that they would be called to come here and to serve God. Well, they answered the call and they came. But they didn't serve God the way they were supposed to. They didn't serve God through His Son, Jesus. They rejected Jesus Christ. And they built themselves a temple. And they reinstated the sacrifices. And God sent people to, to alert them to these things. Now, when the, um, when the two witnesses are here, we know it's in the second half of the tribulation and this is when Antichrist has set himself up in the nation of, of uh, Israel and exercising his will and they are certainly there to proclaim things against them. But would they not also be proclaiming things against the Jews? You need to accept Jesus. You need to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. He, these sacrifices, these are not what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be accepting the sacrifice of Jesus. And during this time, the sacrifices would have uh, been hindered, if not stopped completely, because the altar had been desecrated, and Antichrist set up the abomination of desolation in the temple. So they could have been going on and preaching to people, you don't need the temple to get rid of your sins. Jesus Christ has done it. So they were probably preaching to the heathen, but they're also probably preaching to Israel and proclaiming messages to them. And the children of Israel weren't listening. And they apparently won't listen. And they probably are going to go through with a prophecy and let them know, if you do not listen, calamity is coming. And then when calamity came, perhaps it was then that some people repented. Perhaps it was then that the people said, we need to heed the words of the Lord and receive Jesus. And then He shows up and defends them. That is a scenario. I don't know that it's exactly how it happens. I'm just saying it could well happen that way. But God is not letting His righteous people be obliterated in this way and then suddenly show up. 
something has to go wrong. They have to reject something. So I would say it something along those lines that they're rejecting. Now, is this temple literal? You can tell from what we've talked about so far, I believe 100% this is a literal temple. There are problems with it being a literal temple. And I've read over all the problems and I don't have any problems with the problems. But that's not saying that, I, that other people don't. Uh, first off, these things must come about in order for the nation of Israel to, um, uh, to be, well, they're, they're going to be restored by God in the land of Palestine. That's going to be the first thing. And we, we've seen that in other places and other prophecies. They will be restored by God in the land of Palestine. And we've already seen that occur. So that's not a problem. They will be ruled by only one king. Now here's where some folks and, and I depart. In Ezekiel 34, 23, I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now most people see this as David as figurative of Jesus. I was surprised that I did, I've read over his materials. I love his stuff on the end times and uh, kind of cut my teeth on a, on a lot of his writings. I was surprised to find out that uh, Walverd, if you've heard of that name before, actually believes that David, King David, is resurrected and put into the position of king because of this verse. I don't see that as happening, but um, apparently at least one person does. I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, I still see this as something for the millennial reign, not something for when the temple has to be built. So I don't tie this in with this has to happen when the temple is there. But some people will do so because of the, the prophecy of Ezekiel there. Um, that they will dwell on this earth for eternity. Well, I don't have any problem with that. The, the nation of Israel that goes into the tribulation will dwell on this earth for eternity. It will continue to be the nation of Israel. And the city of Jerusalem will continue to be the city of Jerusalem. Uh, that a temple will be built on this earth for God to dwell. Well, God doesn't dwell in temples, they'll tell you. If you want a literal interpretation of this, God does not dwell in temples. I've read over the prophecies with just this question in mind. I do not see that God says, build a temple so I can dwell in it like he did with Solomon. I don't see that. I see the expectation of the people who build it that God would dwell in it. But if these people reject the Son, how would they recognize whether the Father showed up? Because they say, if you, Jesus said himself, if you don't know me, you don't know the Father. If you reject me, you reject the Father. So if they reject the Son, they rejected the Father. So how could they tell that the Father showed up in the temple if they reject the Son? So just because they acknowledge that the Spirit of God is in the temple doesn't mean it is. It might be. But it doesn't have to be as far as I'm concerned. But a temple will be built on this earth for God to dwell. That's their purpose for doing it. But God never said it was His purpose. He's just telling you this is what's here. He's having them go out and to measure these things. This is, this is what's here. 
the Levitical priesthood will be restored with um, the descendants of Zadok officiating. Now, if you'll remember, in the days of Solomon, Zadok and Abiathar acted as high priests together until the rebellion of Adonijah. When uh, he rebelled and tried to take over the throne, Abiathar went with him and Zadok stayed with the family of David. The one that David had picked, which was Solomon. And so there was a split on that. When Solomon took the throne, he took Abiathar and threw him out from being the high priest. So that that line was no longer a high priest. Everything was from Zadok. And so the... Uh, I put it in your outline. This is how they're actually called the Zadokites. <laughs> they would be officiating. Well, I don't have a problem with Levites in officiating at the temple. Because they don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior, they reject that. So the whole reason they want to build a temple is to reinstate sacrifices so that their sins can be uh, forgiven. Animal sacrifices as an atonement for sin will return. Circumcision will return to a, 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 a have a greater degree in the view of the people than uh, Paul had for it. And Paul taught in the New Testament. So they're going to see this as, well, this is wrong. Paul showed that circumcision was nothing. So for them to elevate circumcision to such a high level, again, that would be a wrong thing to do. Well, they're going to do that because they're going to be uh, worshiping God in the Old Testament way, not in the New Testament way. So I don't have a problem with any of these things because I said I don't see Israel as going back to... to um, I see them as going back to God, but not going back to Jesus. Or not going to Jesus, I should say. They haven't gone to Jesus to go back to Him. There will be some Jews who accept Jesus. We know that from Revelation. There will be some that are sealed. They accept Jesus. There will be some Jews that do that. We're told of 144,000 that are sealed. Those ones are probably ones that accept Jesus Christ as Messiah. But the majority of those that are Jewish people in the land will not receive Jesus will not accept Him as their Savior, will not see Him as the Son of God. And they will worship God through their Old Testament ways. Now, I'll give you a couple of things. If the prophecy is figurative, what would it represent? There's people that believe that. I don't know how they do. I don't know how you can reject the literal interpretation of this being a temple and go on to a figurative one, but I'll give you a couple of the things that people are hanging on to. Here's the first one. Ezekiel has given us an allegory in which David represents Christ, the temple represents the church, and the priests represent Christians. Is that bizarre? To me, I can't even get my head around that one. But uh, some people do and will adamantly defend it. Here's another one. Ezekiel is painting a beautiful picture of, and I, I just wrote this down as they, were, as they had depicted him. Ezekiel is painting a beautiful picture of glory and blessings for the Jews under their coming Messiah without intending each specific detail to be allegorical. Under the second view, the details are brush strokes. The message is an overall picture. Now, to me, that is to ignore everything about the book of Ezekiel. Because up until now, every detail in Ezekiel's prophecies have been literal have been far-fetched, but have been, uh, they were accomplished. They did come about. 
Ezekiel, the beauty of his prophecies is the detail. Because he hears so clearly from God, and God speaks to him in such high detail of things, because he knows Ezekiel will put it out. Exactly as God says it. So if knowing that about this prophet, and you've raised him up all this way, to now give him something where the details don't matter? I don't see that. I don't see God doing that. If, if God raised him up this way, he says, I know Ezekiel will present these details and I need these details to be presented just like they are. So we're not only going to give him a vision of this, we're going to take Ezekiel and we're going to take him to a high mountain so he can see the overall picture that to the south of the mountain is where this thing that looks like a city is the best he could describe it. And then we're going to take him right there and he's going to see the temple measured and he's going to write down all the measurements for it so that we could construct it and we could build it because it's not here yet now the the jewish people believe in the old testament they believe in the writings of of ezekiel they may take this as a plan and they may may lay it out but whether they do or not this is how it's going to be built if they go and they make their own plans this is how they're going to build it now in prophecy i tend to be literal until figurative is proven there are some things that are figurative, but I'm going to take I'm, what uh, prophecy is given. I take it literally until it's proven that it needs to be seen as as something figurative. And I want to take you back over to Ezekiel chapter 40 and verse 4. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and fix your mind on everything I show you. For you are brought here so that I might show them to you, declare to the house of Israel everything you see. Does that sound like the details don't matter? Boy, it doesn't to me. Sounds to me like every detail in this prophecy is important. And I know you will be careful with them. When he says to him, fix your mind on everything I show you. Don't leave anything out. I don't want you to forget it. Everything I show you right now is important. For you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Where is here? Here is not just a place, it's a time. He is brought here to where the temple is physically built. And he can see it. He is not laying out a prophecy. This is what God will do. He is saying, I saw it. Just like Moses, when he came and he brought the details of the first temple, didn't, he, didn't it say in the Word of God that he was to be careful to make sure he built it exactly as he saw it in heaven? Ezekiel is doing the same thing here. He saw it built on the earth. And God went around and He measured it. To me, it seems pretty clear the purpose is in the details. Ezekiel was to see these things, not just hear about them. It was important that he would see them. Because then he could pass on to the people what he saw as an eyewitness. I didn't just hear about this. I didn't just envision it. Folks, I was there. I saw it. 
I walked on the place. I saw it. This is a very real building. It will be coming. He didn't know how many thousands of years he had to wait for it. But it will be coming. So what follows here may seem, in all these, these chapters to come, it may seem incredible and even impossible. But Ezekiel can say to the people, I saw it and I'm able to testify as such. Many a Christian, so-called Christian, has had much trouble with the writings of Ezekiel. I don't have any trouble with it. I believe every bit of it, as, is, as it is written, it is true. And as this was written about the temple that is to come, this is how the temple will show up. I am thoroughly convinced this is a literal temple. This is nothing uh, figurative, uh, spiritual, no allegory. This is what is going to happen. So we'll spend some time on it. Uh, the next time we'll, we'll get you to, to see what this is going to look like. Compare it to what the other ones look like. It'll be kind of fun to see. This is what uh, we, we think Solomon's temple looked like. This is what we think uh, uh, Herod's temple looked like. And this is what this temple looks like. Uh, and like I said, it's amazing how many of these pictures that people drew independently of each other drew pretty much the same thing. So we'll, we'll get a chance to see that and see how that, uh, that comes about. Well, Father, I thank you for the details that you gave to Ezekiel here. This is important for you to convey to the generations that would come and would read this. We know this was not fulfilled before the days of Jesus because that temple was nowhere near this big. This is something that is to come. This is something that any Christ will desecrate. Father, you wanted us to know the details. You wanted us to know this is what's coming about. I thank you for one such as Ezekiel was raised up who could be trusted and that you gave this information to. And I thank you for the things that you will teach us as we study the rest of these chapters together. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.